Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space. Welcome to the Gateway Sessions podcast, where we discuss the science of psychedelics, mental health, optimal human wellness, longevity, cutting-edge nutrition, and more science-based tools for improving your life. I'm Ariana Summer, and I'm the Global Innovation and Research Leader for Gateway Sciences. Real human connection and love is the foundation of individual and collective well-being. The lack of true connection is at the root of many issues we're facing as a society. How can we create and deepen authentic connection? Our guest today is Dr. Molly Malouf, the founder and CEO of Adamo Bioscience, a company pioneering the science of love. Dr. Molly is passionately dedicated to radically extending health span and lifespan through her concierge medical practice, as well as her endeavors as an educator and entrepreneur. She has been at the cutting edge of using biohacking, functional medicine, and personalized healthcare to maximize human potential. Dr. Molly has worked as an advisor or consultant to over 50 companies in the digital health, consumer health, and biotech industries. She provides personalized medicine to entrepreneurs, investors, technology executives, as well as numerous celebrities, and teaches a course on health span in the medical school at Stanford University. In her brand new book, The Spark Factor, the Secret to Supercharging Energy, Becoming Resilient, and Feeling Better Than Ever, Dr. Molly shares the knowledge and tools we need to create more energy, more love, and more connection to live our best lives. None of the content in this podcast constitutes medical advice or should be construed as a recommendation to use psychedelics. There are psychological, physical, and sometimes legal risks with such usage. Please consult your doctor before considering anything we discuss in this episode. Dr. Molly, welcome to Gateway Sessions. I am so pleased you made time for us. Really have been looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Something that really is interesting about one of the many focuses of your work is the focus you give to love. And Mm -hmm. I personally believe that the lack of connection is at the root of many things that ail us. We're disconnected from nature, disconnected from each other, disconnected from... And I truly feel everything is about love, the presence or the absence of it. So... The question of whether we have love in our lives, why is that question so important? I love this, mostly because I spent a year trying to understand the role of love after I had been teaching at Stanford, and there was a course that I was teaching that was all about extending health span. So in the middle of writing this course, I was doing a lecture on relationships, and I started looking at the numbers, and the it was astonishing to me. I was just like, oh my God, literally relationship quality is one of the biggest drivers of health or disease. Like high quality, healthy relationships is probably the greatest factor that we know in long-term health and happiness. And yet it's really missing from modern medicine. And in fact, when I started my company, really trying to understand the science of love, I got a lot of, I just went throughout the literature and I just found just horror stories of researchers who were attacked for actually studying love. It's actually not received almost any funding from the National Science Foundation. 
a lot of men in the past have actually actually attacked different researchers for claiming to want to understand this. They were like, no, this just needs to be a mystery forever. <laughs> it's, then I started really looking at the DSM and I was just thinking to myself, wow, at, le- at least three quarters of this, maybe half of this is due to social injury, is due to people being hurt by others, due to lack of love, abuse, neglect, trauma. And I just kept on asking myself, why don't we see this problem as a bigger issue? And then when the pandemic came along, it was just so clear that isolation was causing so much disease, was causing a worsening of addiction, was causing a worsening of depression and anxiety, and it was causing people to self-destruct. And I think that we are in a reckoning as a society today because people are more isolated and disconnected than ever, as you described. And now we're seeing the consequences of this. I think that the mass shooting, I think that the amounts of diseases of despair that are going up are all a root all rooted in lack of love, all rooted in lack of connection. And I come from a really wonderful family. I am, if anything, it's probably a big piece of my success is the fact that I was raised by incredible parents. I have amazing sisters. We are super tight and super connected. It is rare actually to have a family like this. And I think about, I put myself in the position of others and I've seen so many people fall apart when they lose their parents. I've seen it happen time and time again. And it's it's really surprising to me how how just when people have loss, especially loss of like people, loved ones, it can really contribute to all sorts of problems in the body. And in particular, when I was thinking about psychedelic medicine and thinking about this company that I've started around psychedelic medicine, it's really been this idea of what if we were to actually try to help improve the chances of our relationships lasting longer and also improve the chances of having better connection between partners, using medicines that can change our neuroplasticity and help us get get out of these ruts that we're in. And I think attachment dysfunction, I think sexual dysfunction, I think a lot of trauma is a result of people in relationships that can be harmful to them and people in relationships that are maybe not like directly traumatic or abusive, but maybe just aren't, they, maybe they just lack the vitality they had when they first fell in love. And so I'm really excited about MDMA getting approved because when it, before it was banned by the DEA, it was used by 500,000 people safely underground without any major, any deaths. And it was used for couple therapy. And I think that it's going to make a comeback. And I think there's a, definitely an opportunity to combine MDMA with integration programs. What a lot of people don't realize is that MDMA is a love drug. It reproduces the neurobiology of love. So I think it's really perfectly suited for relationships and sexuality because these are core to our existence. And I think these can be improved with these medicines. 100%. And I find it really interesting that you bring up MDMA. We've seen some of the studies that have been done where people are helped out of the deepest pits of despair, whether they have to deal with really heavy PTSD or other trauma. And all of a sudden they're taken out of this loop of fear, of terror or sadness, or even despondency dealing with whatever their trauma was. And they're put in a state that is filled with love and euphoria. So we're also very excited to see what will happen with the legalization. What's your take, just as a quick question, when do you expect if things go smoothly for MDMA actually to become a compound that will be illegal, at least in clinical setting? I think 
conservatively, optimistically, it's two to three years, hopefully not longer than that. It's really a matter of they've really, they've literally passed everything the FDA has asked them to do. And yet they're still making them do more studies. I do think that they have a chance within the next few years. I do. I think it's possible. That would be amazing. Yes. And you mentioned that you are your company. You're the founder and CEO of Adamo Bioscience. And you are a company that's pioneering the science of love. You already told us a little bit about it. Can you give us more of an insight about Adamo and your mission, please? When I was in my late 20s, I was using MDMA with a partner and I accidentally healed three different sexual dysfunctions that I did not know I had. And I don't think a lot of women realize that they have sexual dysfunction. I had lack of arousal. I wasn't getting wet with my partner. I had pain during sex. And then I would also not have an orgasm with a man. I could never orgasm with a man. I could orgasm on my own, but I would. I had situational anorgasmia. I had sexual pain, also known as dyspareunia. And then I also had hypo, hypoactive arousal. So it wasn't until these were gone what what just happened? What is going on here? <laughs> and turns out that 40% of women have sexual dysfunction and about 20% of them have clinical distress about it. A lot of it is due to, there's a bunch of different causes. It can be hormone defici- deficiency. It can be, there's a lot of biological causes of sexual dysfunction, but I'm in particular interested in the sort of psychological and the mind-body related causes. So social injury related, trauma related, relationship problems, mood disorders, this category contributes greatly to sexual dysfunction. And turns out that Imperial College recently ran a study on comparing SSRIs to psilocybin for depression. And they also identified sexual function in this study. And they basically discovered that not only does psilocybin improve depression, but it also improves sexual function. So when I was first starting this company, I was initially trying to commercialize a psychedelic that was basically a three drug combination designed to be used in a sexual context as an MDMA alternative. But as I've grown, as this company has grown, and I've come to the realization that as much as I'd like to give people the ultimate sex drug, the FDA probably never will let me do that. And on top of that, they will probably not me. It would be almost impossible to commercialize a three drug combination. So what we're developing now is a drug agnostic protocol for sexual dysfunction. And this is a very long-term play of a company. Like this is not going to be an overnight success, but I have a very deep conviction because I was able to heal from sexual dysfunction that other women are going to be able to heal too. And so MDMA is basically being used for PTSD, but the number one cause of PTSD is sexual trauma. So I spoke with the founders of MAPS and the really cool thing about the way that they're designing their studies is you can integrate MDMA for PTSD with whatever type of therapy you desire. So what we are aiming to do is to pioneer a novel sex therapy. And the reason why is sex therapy hasn't really been innovated in 50 years since Masters and Johnson and Kinsey. And so most of the sex therapies that exist are largely psychological therapies and some drugs like Vilesi and Addy. But what I believe is that it turns out that in the encyclopedia of psychoactive plants, And the encyclopedia of aphrodisiacs, almost every psychedelic is known to be an aphrodisiac. It's all contextual. So I'm really interested in the possibility of designing a therapy that could work with psychedelic window of neuroplasticity. So we probably won't be able to give people take-home medicine, but we can 
still give people medicine right after they've had a, tr- a psychedelic experience for healing PTSD or healing depression and give them an integration pro- protocol that specifically targeted as the sexual side effects of these problems. And we're also going to be running retreats abroad. And we're looking at different countries right now, the Caribbean, we're looking at Bolivia, we're looking at Costa Rica, we're looking at Canada and Amsterdam as locations to run couples retreats. Because I know basically there's this huge demand for people who are in long-term marriages and that spark has been lost a little bit. And people want to reignite that spark and they want to reignite the connection with their partner and they want to improve their sexual function. And a lot of women have like suboptimal sex lives because they don't really know how to communicate with their partners about what they need. And so we really want to start pioneering this form of sex therapy and testing it on healthy normals. And then we're also planning on running a study on people with military sexual trauma because it's a huge problem. It's somewhere between 40 and 70% of all women who've served in the military. And so we know that these individuals are at higher risk for suicide, of chronic diseases, of mental health disturbances. And we really want to be able to give them some freedom from their pain. So we're really excited about the condition of healing sexual pain because increasing desire is one thing that we know is probably going to be, we think it'll work for desire, but in particular, when there are people who really can't have sex because of pain, it's really, it can be really damaging to relationships. It can actually break people up. So we're really interested in this specific condition because oftentimes there's also women who also carry other conditions with it. So we're going to address, we're going to basically recruit people to the study who have multiple sexual dysfunctions. And we're going to identify like what our protocol can best be suited to. That's fantastic, Dr. Molly. And there's so many people in need. And I think one of the most important things is to start having open conversations about this. I'm certain I personally am also not a stranger to sexual dysfunction. I have me friends, male, female, or whatever they identify as who've also had problems either on and off or all of a sudden or all of their lives. I would like to know, so for you, your personal experience, was it an immediate alleviation of the, and oftentimes these are also symptoms, right? From something deeper rooted. So was it an immediate alleviation and then the light bulb went off or was it gradual. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? It wasn't, it wasn't one single episode of the medicine. I definitely had multiple episodes in the course of a couple of weeks. It was around Burning Man and there, I was young, I was experimenting. It was one of those really profound accidents that turned out to be life-changing. Psychedelics, I've always been a believer in. And I've, I was like reading about these in college when I was 18. I was reading about the history of psychedelics. I was like, I didn't even take psychedelics till like my early 20s. And even then barely touched them, like maybe once or twice in my early 20s. But I've always been a believer that these are medicines and these have been used as medicines since the beginning of human culture. And so I've always been one of those people who've been unafraid to be like honest about her beliefs. And people thought I was a little bit crazy initially. They were like, psychedelics, medicines, these are party drugs. And, but when you go from having literally like, terrible sex throughout your twenties to having like an experience where you feel finally like you can let go. Like you can finally experience pleasure. Like you can finally be witnessed in your pleasure without feeling embarrassed about it. I think there's a lot of women who are actually afraid to completely let go in the experience of orgasm 
They're so tense. They're so worked up. And also the thing is, I would consider most of my 20s to be dissociated in general. Like I had two episodes of sexual trauma in college. One in five women in college are raped. One in five women are assaulted in their lifetime. One in four are abused as children. One in three are are actually, so it's one in three are assaulted. One in five are raped. One in four are abused as children. And this is CDC data. And so of those numbers, around 60 to 80% of women will develop sexual dysfunction. And about 30% of women with sexual trauma will develop PTSD. So I was just look, I was just thinking about, okay, so how do I take what happened to me on accident and help people achieve this on purpose? It is like a huge endeavor because this is a minefield. Psychedelic space has a lot of problems. And there, so one of the things I'm thinking about is like designing this protocol so that the entire protocol is telemedicine, except for the actual experience so that there's less interaction between the patient and their therapist one-on-one in person. Cause I really want people to not fall in love with their parent, with their therapists. Like it's a love drug. It's literally designed to create the conditions and feelings of love. We're first going to be studying couples because we really want people to direct their energy towards their partner. And we are developing an ethics framework around psychedelics and sexuality, because it's not enough to tell people what not to do. We actually have to tell people what would be like the gold standard of behavior of if the world looked like, if the world was a better world that we want to create, what would that look like? So I'm working with a world-class ethicist who wrote the book, Love Drugs, Brian Earp. And we're like literally trying to break this problem down. And I know that a lot of this seems like it's research. We fully intend to start essentially testing this out, hopefully in studies. And we think that with data, we'll be able to actually demonstrate to interested investors and other people interested in this industry that there's a way to use psychedelics in a sexual context or post-sexual context for healing. And I really just think that this sounds like it's nuts right now, but it won't be crazy in 10 years. I don't think it sounds nuts at all. I think it is a very interesting and promising approach to something that ails society so deeply. Now it's easy to say, oh, people have sexual dysfunction or they just don't enjoy it or have pain, but how it affects us as a society overall, I think most people don't even have any idea how profound the effects of this are. And you touched upon something really important as well. And that's, of course, the integrity of the individuals who will be doing the treatments needs to be 100% because people, our sexuality is where we can be either at our most vulnerable or at our most empowered, sometimes both at the same time. And that's also a beautiful thing. However, it's very easy to push people deeper into some kind of pain or trauma if if the practitioners don't have integrity. We're not trauma-informed. A lot of people just aren't trauma-informed. They just don't have the education on what happens when someone has a trigger. What happens when they go into a state of complete panic? How is that addressed? And it's not one of those things that gets properly taught. Nobody really wants to look at sexual trauma as a problem, but it is a huge issue. It's like a, affects a massive percentage of society. And I think it's, it's a lot bigger of a problem than people are willing to look at. And so as a result, it's shoved under the rug. Nobody wants to discuss it. But you know what? Me Too has dropped a lot of shame around this topic. And so now I'm like, well, part of the reason why I started this company is I was like, Okay. So me too happened. We all know that there's like all sorts of problems in society around sexual power dynamics. 
what are we going to do about it? <laughs> besides shaming people who are assaulting women, besides shaming people who are, besides pointing out these obvious issues, what are we going to do about these problems? What are we going to do about childhood sexual abuse? What are we going to do about human trafficking? What can we do? We can all start talking about this openly because the more we talk about it, we're going to drop shame for people. The more we drop shame for people, the less, the more motivated they are to actually pursue these, um, these potential solutions. And I think we also need to educate people on the risks of healing with psychedelics. First and foremost, there are a lot of people claiming to be psychedelic shamans who are abusing people and actually touching them sexually during psychedelic trips. That is never okay. And that is actually sexually traumatizing. And the thing is, a lot of people don't realize that these people who are doing this work thinking they think that they're helping them. They actually do believe that what they're doing is helping this person. And that's just not okay. And so anytime that there's a power differential between a practitioner and a patient, there shouldn't be sexual contact. One of the things that I believe is that there's actually a much bigger issue in mental health and not just a psychedelic space because the psychedelic space gets all the brunt of this argument, but actually like 10% of mental health practitioners work with like actually that work, work with patients actually engage in relationships and sexual contact with their patients. This is clinical, this is clinical research. So it's a bigger problem for society than we realize. And part of me feels as though what we're not really talking about is the fact that power differentials can create a charge between people. They can create sexual energy between people. And if you don't diffuse that energy by pointing it out and by actually like helping people find better therapists, you just shouldn't be working with someone who you have like a sexual charge with because it's going to it's going to impair your healing it's going to impair your relationship you can't really be objective and unbiased if you have feelings for someone i've actually literally had men want to work with me as a doctor and i'm a private doctor to executives and i've literally had to say look i can't work with you cuz i'm like i'm attracted to you and or they say they're attracted to me and they want to ask me out on a date and i'm like look, we can't work together. <laughs> and they're like, or maybe we've been on a date and they've been like, okay, I'd really like to work with you as a doctor. And I'm like, no, like that will never happen. That can never happen. And you just have to have really strong boundaries because this is a big issue in society. And like, apparently something like 40% of people find their partners in work. And so it's also a big issue in the workplace. So there's a lot of workplace power dynamics that nobody really wants to address. So I just feel like as an American culture, we are we have an opportunity to make a drastic like awakening and shift in how we talk about sex and really let's just point out these big issues like front and center. Let's just yeah. look at them in the eye and then let's really think about what we could do to actually be more honest and open and bring things to the surface before they become major problems for people. And you mentioned something that I think is so at the core of the issue, and that is boundaries, which is of yes. course connected to consent. And if we look at the sexual education model that is pervasive in so many places in the U.S., yeah. it's either built around abstinence, and abstinence is a viable option, but it's one of the many options. However, if you make it the only option, that's a huge problem. And then it's built around fear guys and how to prevent SDIs and pregnancy, pregnancy. now and it's like the abortion ban it's like really terrifying for women absolutely absolutely and the numbers have skyrocketed of women and also men who are thinking about taking surgical steps in order to make sure that they won't be part of one of the partners that create a pregnancy and that's horrifying and so also if you mentioned actually that in an interview that 30% of Gen Z 
doesn't want to have sex. What's happening with the younger generations? I don't know if it's, I got a little bit in trouble with that statistics because I do think that there, it may be less than that, but it is a some, it's somewhere between 15 and 30% potentially. And I just think that my personal gut, it, like gut feeling is there's so much anxiety in this generation. And when your body is in a state of anxiousness, it's like, it's trying to protect itself. It's mm-hmm. trying to survive. It's not trying to reproduce. And so this happens when people are going through fertility treatments. It's like, they're like trying to get, they're trying to have sex. They're trying to trying to force this, this thing to happen. And oftentimes the anxiety and the stress actually impairs their fertility. So I'm not saying their fertility is impaired in young people. I'm saying like, if you're really stressed out and really anxious, and this, they say that Gen Z is the most anxious generation. And in California, the rates of mental health problems in young people have gone up significantly. So if this is the case for young people, then you can't really blame them for not wanting to have sex. Like also, if you're disconnected, if you're not regularly hanging out with friends, if you don't have opportunities to have sex, if you're not dating, there's a lot of these kids living their lives online and they got even further isolated during the pandemic. So I think it's a combination of factors. I don't think it's that they don't find sex appealing. I think it's that it's just, we're living in a really chaotic time. And when I was in teen, when I was a teenager in college, there's like the golden age of America. It was like the biggest thing in the news was like Bill Clinton getting a blowjob. Like it was like, everything was peaceful. Everybody was happy. I remember just having time of my life and in, in, in high school and I had a generally a good time in college. But but I think nowadays I really feel for young people. I really empathize with them. And I taught at Stanford for three years. I actually moved to Austin and let go of my role there because it's like college, just like, honestly, like it wasn't a fun experience to be on campus. Like, I didn't, I was like, man, I can't believe this. These kids are paying so much for school when there's no fun allowed. There's no parties. Like like, it's crazy. It was just really wild to see so few students on campus and so little going on socially. And I was like, that was not my college experience. If anything, my college experience was mostly socializing. So I, yeah, I feel for young people. I think uh, there's a lot to be worried about the environment, World War III, (laughs) you name it, like all sorts of things going wrong in the world right now. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stress and can understand that if, you know, the younger generations looking at the older generations and it looks like the older generations are just messing everything up worse. That's the one thing. So we have the current situation, a lot of different stressors. How do you think epigenetics and potentially the programming of the older generations contributes to the sexual dysfunction? The bigger issue we need to be thinking about is the environment and the environment's filled with so many chemicals and endocrine disruptors. And the fact that like a 26 year old woman came to me and was like, did you know that I went on birth? I went on testosterone replacement because I had low testosterone. And I was just like, the fact that's happening to people that young is pretty concerning. And we cannot ignore the elephant in the room, which is like our environment is getting Mm -hmm. more and more poisonous to live in. And I live in Austin and even I'm not even sure this is healthy long-term as a city to live in. I like it right now, but like my dream would be to move somewhere more like heaven on earth, more paradise, but that's ideal. So yeah, we got to look at our environment. We got to look at our food environment too. There's a lot of problems in our food. There's a lot of pesticides. There's a lot of like forever chemicals, dioxins. And, and then there's the beauty industry, right? So, which is a multi-billion dollar industry. If not, I don't even know if trillions at this point, it's got to be huge. And the whole beauty industry is basically designed for, it's basically designed to basically make you more attractive, but paradoxically, it's making us sicker and less sexual. 
And so it's kind of, wow, we're putting all these things on our bodies to be healthy. And if anything, like I look back on my youth and like all the Bath and Body Works products I used to wear, all of those smelly chemicals, like I bathed in those. What the heck was I thinking? Yes. And it, I only started using clean products like midway through my 30s. And I mean, like that until then, I was using standard conventional crap. And it's, whoa, how much of a burden did I develop? And that's really problematic that a lot of people don't want to talk about. Oh, absolutely. And these toxins, <clears throat> excuse me, accumulate. I have found a really great tool a few years ago, the Environmental Working Group, EWG, yes. I think, .org. Yes. You can go online and whether it's beauty products, whether it's household cleaning products or anything like that, you can look up that product. You can look up what the potential problems are, what kinds of toxins there are, and you can find clean products. And this is such a basic part of taking care of ourselves because we do it every day. And Dr. Molly, you are actually also an expert in extending health span. You do it via your medical practice, your personal brand, and all of the educational and entrepreneurial endeavors that you have going on. And I know you also have a book coming out, The Spark Factor. So it is actually about optimizing our lives, hacking our biology, right? It's a biohacking book. I can't wait for it to come out. And I would love to know a little bit more about that. Can you give us a teaser? Yeah, I'd love to talk about the book. So basically, I wrote a book on biohacking Roman because I wanted to write a book on my overarching philosophy of health. But but really, like people buy health books when they are actionable, right? And so I was like working in Silicon Valley, working with all these patients and noticing and their girlfriends were trying to do the same biohacking trends as the men were, and we were all getting very different results. Mm. <laughs> so men could be like fasting and ketosis and hit training and weightlifting, and they just get ripped and lean. And women were trying the same thing and we were getting fatter and we were getting, we were getting like major plateaus within a month or two and more stress and burnout. And I was just like, wow, what is different about us? And so I just asked myself, what are our biological imperatives? Women are largely oxytocin dominant. Men are largely vasopressin dominant. So men are really designed to go out, hunt and protect and defend. Women are designed to nurture and basically propagate the species. So we have to be really careful with our metabolisms because we need to keep the tribe alive, right? That's our job is to make life and to keep them alive. And so when women layer on too many stressors, and too many biohacks, they can actually end up getting problems. They can get more hormone dysfunction. They can get burned out. They can actually have less energy. And so it's really a book on trying to help women disentangle this question of like, how do I biohack and how do I do it safely without hurting myself? And how do I do it gently and carefully? And so a lot of it is about how, look, fasting is a great tool. If fasting fixed my fasting glucose, if I didn't learn to fast, I wouldn't have fixed my insulin resistance. But now that I'm more of an athlete, and I'm far fitter and I have better metabolism, I don't need to fast as much because it does. And especially when I'm under the amount of stress I am this year, I'm launching a book. I've got a company. I fundraised. I taught at Stanford. I advise like 15 companies and I still see patients. Like it's not a normal year for me. This is an extraordinarily stressful year. So I have had to be a lot more careful with the biohacks this year and I'm all for measurements. So the book is a lot about continuous glucose monitoring, continuous stress monitoring, taking this data and saying, ooh, I'm noticing some changes in how I'm adapting to stress and how my metabolism is adapting to my diet. What can I do to course correct? What can I do to create the conditions for more stability, more homeostasis? 
And so it gives people not just this overview of men and women, but also really trying to understand like, how do I look at my body as an individual? How do I wear this this technologies and actually apply the data to my own life? What do I do if I see my blood sugars all over the place? What do I do if I have prediabetes? What do I do if my heart rate's really high and my HRV is really low? And how can I focus on habit formation and one thing at a time to slowly lead to a better adaptation to become stronger? And then what do I do if I'm burned out? Should I do all these really intense biohacks? Absolutely not. A bit, a, the big piece of this book is like, you have to tailor your lifestyle to your world. Like your lifestyle is unique to you, your environment, your needs, your stresses, your demands. And then I try to explain to people that a lot of things need to be done cyclically. A lot of things need to be toggle switched. So like sauna and cold plunge is great. But if you're really stressed, you don't want to do too much sauna and too much cold plunge. You want to do a little bit less or maybe even skip it if you're really feeling overwhelmed with the amount of stuff you've got on your plate. Or maybe just do 15 minutes with sauna. And just like really trying to dose your interventions based on what your body is asking for and needing. So I'm really trying to teach people, how do you learn about stress warning signals? Do you know if you're stressed? What does that even feel like? Like I have literal questionnaires in the book, just trying to teach people, this is what it feels like to be really stressed out. This is what you need to pull back on some of these things. So a lot of the books about recovery, a lot of the books about metabolism, a lot of the book is about mitochondrial health because your mitochondria are the seat of your energy production, your hormone production, your stress hormone production, your immune system regulation. Like they sense and they integrate the environmental signals and then they decide where your energy is going to go. They decide if you're in survival mode or if you're in reproduction mode. And whether you're making kids or building companies, you're going to have a better result for both if you're not in a state of threat. Being in a state of threat impairs reasoning and impairs metabolism and impairs all sorts of problems. So you, it causes all sorts of problems. So you have to create the conditions of your mindset to make you stronger. And you have to actually create the conditions in your lifestyle to help you recover and adapt to stress. The last part of the book is about hormones, connection, love, these really big drivers of health that we don't talk enough about. And I talk about the life cycle of a woman, the menstrual cycle of a woman, how you can really adjust your, your food, your fitness, your stress, your socialization, the big four pillars of health, which is metabolism, movement, stress, and connection. I talk about how you can really like use your menstrual cycle to actually alter these different pillars in order to optimize your energy throughout your your menstruation. And so it's a really fun book because I poured my heart and soul into it for three years. It's got a lot of the best teachings from my Stanford course. I actually have an online course that goes really well with the book. That's really for a broader audience, both men and women. It's called Your Health Span Journey. And it's really a course designed to prepare you for your life, to actually give you a full curriculum. It's not even just a course. It's actually like 18 courses to actually prepare you for your future. And the book and the course go really well together. So we're actually doing a presale where we're giving the course for like 67%. We're like two thirds off in order to just encourage people to buy the book and also to take the course because we really, I just want people to live as long as possible without disease and age in reverse. <laughs> Excellent. And where can we find this? Where can we get to the presale? At doctor, www.drmolly.co. It'll be on my website. We're starting that like in the next couple of weeks. Super, super. I very yeah. much look forward to it. And I'll be checking that out for sure. I love 
that you put a focus on also the different phases of the menstrual cycle because and also on knowing when you are stressed. Our society, we are pushed into a framework where feeling busy and feeling like we have tons of things to do, we equate that with that makes us good and valuable human beings. To be the F stressed out is the new normal. And and it's crazy. And especially for women, there are certain things that are better to do at certain parts of your cycle and others that you better completely let go of. And I think it's good that we are slowly becoming more and more attuned to these natural cycles. Another part of the discussion is also perimenopause. Finally, it's also getting talked about. I just recently read about the wonderful actress, Naomi Watts, who actually launched a line, a personal care line that is geared towards women who are in menopause and she is banging the drum loud and proud. Yeah. All these barriers that are getting taken down now also by people such as you, Dr. Molly. I think it's really fantastic time for women where this just becomes a normal part of the discussion. Totally. Uh, and, and of course, I'll be doing a deep dive into the spark factor once it's out. But can you maybe give us a little bit of a taste? And you said it very true. Every body is different. We really need to be attuned to what's going on with ourselves and not trying to fulfill something that some, I don't know, crazy, main, amazing biohacker out there is doing every day. And uh, he might be a man when we are women. So what kind of testing would definitely make sense for somebody who's just embarking on the optimization journey. Like what kind of testing, what kind of supplements we look at? Can you, do you have a few little specific Yeah. Like for almost every woman, ferritin is like this really valuable marker because it's such a, it literally starts going low before your iron levels drop. So for fertility reasons, for energy, if you have low ferritin, you also probably are iron deficient and you may not even have abnormalities in your iron or your hemoglobin levels yet, but it can happen before then. And this can actually impair fertility. And so I'm a big fan of the company Upgraded Formulas. They've got a great iron, a liquid iron supplement. And and in, in my case, I just started eating more red meat when I noticed that I was having heavy periods during a really stressful time during the month. Women should also just pay attention to their periods. If you have an absent period or if you have really heavy periods, These are both signals that your hormones are imbalanced. You may have hormone deficiency or you may have hormone excess. And in this case, you really got to look at your menstrual cycle as a window into your life. And you may be not nourishing yourself properly. If you're an athlete, relative energy deficiency of sport is a really big issue. And then PCOS and insulin resistance is a big problem. Estrogen dominance is a big problem. Talk a lot about estrogen dominance in the book. And, uh, Vitamin D is always important. It's just really, it's like lowers all cause mortality to optimize vitamin D. I like it for immunity, for bone health, for hormone health, heart health, brain health, you name it. And omegas, I take high dose pharmaceutical grade omega-3s from Norway. And I'm telling you that man, when these products, I mean, we do, there's only one brand I really called NPure 3, but they're only available in Norway, but they're coming to America. So sign up on their waiting list. But that product has changed my life, changed my brain. I take four grams a day. It's been literally life-changing. You can also buy supplements that are called pro-resolving mediators, which are like the parts of omegas that do the best job at lowering inflammation. But chronic inflammation is really a big problem for a lot of people. So get your omegas checked. You can check your omega-6, 3 numbers. You can check your linoleic acid and your arachidonic acid. You can check these on your labs. I'm also a big fan of measuring 
not just your lipid panel, but your NMR lipoprotein profile. It's a really important lab for your cholesterol and for just understanding your heart's reactivity to your, your basically your heart health and your body's reactivity to your diet. And I look at like cholesterol imbalances from both genetics, but also nutrition and from gut health. A lot of people don't realize that like LDL can go high and HDL can go low when you have dysbiosis in the gut. And so I'm a big believer in gut testing. I get a lot of, some people just don't believe in it, but I've been using the GIFX for years. I had to take antibiotics during the pandemic once, and I had major dysbiosis afterwards. I see this in all my clients who take, who anybody who has to take antibiotics, you will kill off the good bacteria and the bad ones will grow. And so you may not need probiotics unless you check. I needed probiotics. I I'm, I love I love the GIFX because it just tells you so much. And, but you need to go to a functional doctor to read it. Although in my book, I explain how to dissect a GIFX test and what supplements you can take to optimize your gut based on your results. And I put it in there because like, I know that a lot of people are going to, a lot of functional doctors, like there's some people out there that just like no longer really ascribe to this, but I just find it really useful clinically. And if you have blood in your stool, if you have H. pylori growing, if you have a parasite, if you have low lactobacillus, if you have low acromantia, if you have low oxalobacter formagenes, you can make changes on how many polyphenols you consume, how much yogurt you consume, how much um, you can actually decide, should you eat high oxalate foods or not? There's a lot of little tweaks you can make in your diet from your gut test that are just a lot of people just don't know you can optimize your gut health. I also love four-point cortisol testing from the company Precision Hormones. The Dutch test is really key. I've had in I've had low cortisol and high cortisol, and I make changes to my life very much dependent on my cortisol levels. And again, this is a controversial test in functional medicine, in mainstream medicine. But I have found if it's really high or really low, it's often telling you something. But the trickier part is when it's in the middle, but you can really trust it more when you see really high or really low numbers. And it's often very much reflected in how people feel. So if you're waking up in the morning and you're tense and anxious, you might have high cortisol. If you're going to, if you're waking up in the morning with headaches, low blood sugar, low blood pressure, can barely get out of bed, totally exhausted, you probably have low cortisol. And so it's so important to understand these tests. So a lot of these things are not in the book because lab testing is my, my editors were just like, oh, lab testing. This is like, to, this is not available to almost women. So I'm putting a lot of the lab stuff on my website. I'm going to be putting a lot of extra videos on my website, just giving people more knowledge. And I think that's part of the reason why it's great to have a book web, web page because you can't put everything in the book. And thank you for these pointers, Dr. Molly. And I'm also a big believer in lab tests. I'm a big believer in ourselves having the data about us and then yeah. being able to use as a roadmap instead of only doctors getting some information that never even really filters through to us the data. I find it quite ridiculous that certain things are also prescription only. You mentioned before, of course, the blood glucose monitoring. And yeah. I think medicine is moving in a direction where a lot of this data will become more readily available to us and also in a way that is cheaper and financially more reachable for many oh, people. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. So many of the things that I started using 10 years ago are now available as products you could buy. Like personalized, you can buy personalized probiotics from Sun Genomics. You can buy personalized nutrition. I'm actually in the process of developing a like a web app for my website so I can so people can order custom compounded nutraceuticals based on their lab results and their question and a questionnaire. Cause I feel like people need like a taste of what I can offer in my practice without necessarily joining my practice, which is expensive and very much like personalized medicine for. I kind of design custom suits for people, but it's their health. <laughs> so it's like, 
I'm like sewing a custom suit for an individual. That's my practice for medicine. It's like I take a small number and I make these really high-end experiences. But I'm trying more and more. Part of the reason why I advise so many companies is because I'm trying to get my knowledge into software, into products, like available so that you don't have to go to me to get my brain. So someday there'll be an AI that'll be my brain, which is awesome. (laughs) Outstanding. And for those in the audience who want to start approaching their health journey a little bit different, maybe you can give some advice. What would be one of the most important questions that we could ask our doctors? I would say, can you order me a few extra labs. (laughs) Can you get me a blood sugar monitor? I think most doctors should just flat out be offering people blood sugar monitors. Be like, look, I'd love a prescription for this. I'm happy to pay out of pocket for it if my insurance doesn't cover it. CGMs are only 30 bucks and they're like a free test of your metabolism and your metabolic health. If you can't get one for your doctor, go to Levels Health. I'm definitely a big believer in CGMs. And actually I'll give you a link that we can put in the show notes so people can just have a direct access to that. But yeah, I think most people... We'll go to their doctors and, they're, and most, they'll say, hey, doc, I'm tired. <laughs> what do I do? And their doctors, there's nothing wrong with you. So you're on your way. But I would say that if most people actually really looked at their thyroid hormones, like it's not a bad look to get a full thyroid panel. Most doctors only look at TSH, mm-hmm. but you want to get free T3, free T4, T3, T4, reverse T3, TPO, thyroglobulin, thyroglobulin antibodies, and reverse T3. If you have thyroid dysfunction, you might be missing it with just a TSH. Mm-hmm. I had central hypothyroidism after a concussion. And if I had just gotten a TSH, that my doctor would have missed it. And I got my thyroid hormones as well. And it was clear that they were all low. And so you got to advocate for yourself for what you want. My sister is in the hospital right now for a condition that was a headache that lasted a week. And doctors kept giving her drugs and medications. And they said, and she was just like, she was getting worse and worse. And they finally did an MRI. And there was something seriously wrong. Luckily, it's not its not going to ruin her life or anything. It's fixable. But it's like, you have to advocate for yourself in medicine. If you are experiencing problems, you really need to advocate for yourself because the healthcare system is designed to ration care. It's not designed to optimize your health. So the best thing you can do is find a naturopath, a functional medicine doctor, a Chinese medicine doctor, an integrative medicine doctor, a regenerative medicine doctor, an anti-aging doctor, a longevity doctor. These are the kinds of doctors that are doing this kind of medicine. You are not going to get this kind of medicine from your primary doctor. And so don't expect them to do this for you. So the best thing you can do is ask your primary doctor, are you cool with me seeing this other doctor and trading notes? Like primary doctors and the mainstream medical system is best suited for emergencies only. You really want to get your, you obviously want to go to the gynecologist and get your pap smears and STI testing, your your basic women's health. You know, that's important. Your preventive care visits are key. But if you want to go above and beyond, you really shouldn't expect that from the mainstream medical system. It's not designed for that. That's excellent advice, Dr. Molly. A quick break, James. We'll need to edit this out. I have a quick question, Molly. Do we have another 10 minutes or do I have to button up now? If we want to keep going, we can keep going. Great, because I'd like to circle back to something real quick. Then I'll, okay, James, we can pick it up right here. So thank you for those really valuable insights, Dr. Molly. Of course, advocating for ourselves, standing up for ourselves also requires to be really connected with ourselves and not just what's happening around us. And that, of course, is also deeply tied to our 
sense of self-love. We talked about it prior in the conversation, yeah. how important love and connection is. And of course, a big part of love is not only loving others, but the self-love that we practice. Yeah. And many people are walking around with something they're not even aware of, and that's a core wound. How can we actually know if we have one? I actually think everybody has one. I think that life isn't just naturally dangerous and injurious, and we've made it a lot safer. But there's a lot of, there's a big range. And some people describe little T versus big T trauma. There is a small percentage of people who literally have gone through life unscathed completely. But even, but like typically, if you're completely enshrouded from any danger, you become fragile. And that in itself can be a problem, which is if you're too protected and you're not stressed at all, then actually it can make you weaker. So I would say almost everybody has some form of experience in life that was really challenging for them. And not all of it is going to cause PTSD. In fact, only like more people after a major trauma don't develop PTSD than do. So the chances are that people are carrying around, like not everybody, a good percentage of the population has had what are called adverse childhood experiences, things that have happened in your childhood that have been really traumatic and challenging, like witnessing violence, witnessing drug or alcohol addiction, being actually potentially abused verbally or physically, maybe living in poverty and not actually having enough food on the table, perhaps being a refugee and having to migrate, maybe being exposed to even just having, there's a lot of inter inter intergenerational trauma, which can be trauma passed down through your genes. But I would say that the vast majority of people need to like go, I would recommend seeing if you really feel strongly that there is unresolved emotional experiences in your past, the best way to really identify this is to think through how you react in, to different triggers and what your triggers are. So if you react to triggers in a way that is defensive or that is angry or really out of proportion to the actual event, then that may be a that may be like a signal that something has gone, something is out of balance in your sort of healing journey that needs to be looked at. And at the same time, if you shut down, if you dissociate, if you find yourself completely spacing out when something triggers you, that may also be a sign of a defense mechanism. So the beauty of our nervous systems is they have very predictable behaviors based on when we are hurt, often have an out of control reaction or a really just detached reaction. And you really want to look at your behaviors and ask yourself like, oh, do I behave in a certain way as a coping mechanism? And what, where could that be rooted in? Like, what, where did that start in my life? When did all this begin? And I love internal family systems therapy specifically for helping people understand the difference between the higher self and then the firefighter, the manager, and the exile. So the exiles are the traumatized parts of ourselves that we shove under the rug and don't like to pay attention to. And we put in the corner because you're like, we don't want to hear from you. That was scary. We're not going to go back to that. Then there's the firefighter that tries to put out the flames whenever you get triggered. It's what do I do to react? How do I fix this? And then typically like addictions, compulsions, obsessions, that's the firefighter. And then the manager is I'm going to intellectualize my way out of this. I'm going to deal with this by like focusing on work and focusing on structure and order. And these are all adaptive for a reason. Like we literally have created these parts of ourselves so that we can cope, but the goal of internal family systems is to actually learn to connect with your inner child, learn to connect with the part of you that's hurting, learn to give them love and attention, learn to give them what they didn't get when they were younger, 
and then to learn how to integrate these parts of ourselves into our coherent whole. Another form of work and therapy I would highly recommend looking into to disentangle this topic more is attachment work. A lot of people have insecure attachment styles. They have anxious attachment. They have avoided attachment. They can be disorganized. And this is often patterns in our behavior, in our relationships that have came from what we have witnessed from our parents growing up. So if our parents were detached, if our parents were present, we often become avoidant. And we often can't, we often just don't show up for our partners because we just don't know how, because we weren't showed up for. And then the anxious people, they are the kind that are just like overly fearful and attached. And I was talking to a friend of mine about his marriage that didn't happen. He got, he didn't end up marrying this woman. And I was like, you clearly have avoided attachment. And like, he's just super fine on his own. Doesn't really need a relationship. I'm fat. I'm fine. I'm good. I'm happy. And then his partner was constantly fearful of him leaving, constantly afraid that he wouldn't stay, constantly afraid that that like he would run away. And in fact, like our internal experience is often reflected in our external experience. And we often manifest our reality based on what's happening inside. So I'm such a big believer in the law of attraction and like people really watching your thoughts because you're manifesting reality with every thought. And so just so important to like really recognize that if you look and address these underlying issues and these like wounds that we have, you will actually find it a lot easier to maintain healthy relationships. You will find it way easier to love yourself. I worked on attachment with myself for six months. I worked on internal family systems with myself for a year and I was able to heal my relationship with food. And I was like, wow, I cannot believe how much of my food relationship was tied to my, my, my mental health and like how much I was behaving and using food as an emotional crutch when I wasn't really wanting to face my feelings. And it was actually going into the pain and going into the lack of self-love and going into the traumatized parts of myself that led me to feel like, oh my God, I don't actually have to be this way anymore. And it's real work. This, this is not an overnight, you're done, fixed you're on a constant journey of self-discovery and exploration, but I'm all about mental fitness and mental wellness. And like looking at these kinds of therapies that really get to the root. And and I'm not really a big believer in talk therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. I think they kind of work for some people. I like therapies that get me into the experience and into the emotional state, into almost like a trance where you're like connecting deeply with your emotional pain and then you're like toning down the volume and you're to- you're changing the narrative. You're changing the valence of the experience. You're actually like meeting that part of your pain with love. Those kinds of therapies are like, to me, far more effective than the traditional talk therapies. I just don't mm-hmm. find those useful. Oh, a- again, excellent pointers, Dr. Molly. And of course, one part of this approach is finding the right individuals who yeah. help us through it. On the other side, for people who would like to learn a little bit more about that, maybe self-educate with regards to internal family systems and also attachment. Yeah. They're at the top of your head, maybe some books or sure. think of direct. So for trauma therapy, I would say EMDR, somatic experiencing. I love the company MindLight. They have a fantastic institute for healing trauma. They've combined a bunch of different therapeutic modalities into a program. And then for, let's see here, for CPTSD, which is complex PTSD, there's a guy, Pete Walker, who's got a bunch of books that are worth reading. And then for attachment, I love the attachmentproject.com. It's a great starting point. They've got questionnaires and workbooks you can buy. And then for, let's see here, for internal family systems, the book, No Bad Parts, is a a really great book. And man, if I had known this piece of the health puzzle, was so important. I would have started this a long time ago. So 
for those of you listening out there, like you remember like the metabolism piece, like movement, all these matter, but the, like this, the stuff around relationships and attachment and trauma, I just feel like this is the frontier of health. This is really the future. Super. Thank you so much for this, Dr. Molly. And one other thing is, of course, we talked about the potential of psychedelics. Yeah. These kinds of states. And there's also, yeah, I mean, it's amazing. We're living in such an exciting time and so many doors seem to be opening now. Another approach also is, of course, working with practicing meditation, getting into a flow state and to which the effects of psychedelics are also somewhat related. You actually had an experience with a state of samadhi, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So first off, meditation is I'm like really obsessed with altered states of consciousness, as you probably understood by now. (laughs) So meditation, dreaming, hypnagogic states, hypnosis, and, and psychedelics, they all are altered states of consciousness. And there's so many different ways to get into these different brain states. There's even electroceuticals and wearable technologies and light therapies that can do it. But, but I have gone to do, I think I've done like four meditation retreats now that are 10 days through mm-hmm. this company called the Kpasana Foundation. And it's like Vipassana, but a lot more health oriented. Like they do yin yoga, they do breath work. They're actually not open to the public anymore. It's like, an, you really just have to know the founder. But I have to say that like meditation it is so life-changing. And I also think it's worth noting that if you are unstable mentally, it can also be a problem. So you don't just jump into a 10-day meditation retreat without any training. You have to work your way up to that. Start with like three-day or one-day. Start with daily practice because that's really, really key for almost like building your meditation muscle because you can, by the end of a 10-day retreat, you will literally feel like just a frequency. (laughs) You're like, there's no more body left. Like you just, you're just in a state of total peace. And if you're lucky, now, not every meditation retreat has led me to that point, but I have found these to be extraordinarily valuable for doing really deep spiritual inner work. And in fact, like spiritual work is also a lifetime process. It's not like you're always going to be needing to make progress in that area. You're going to fall back. You're going to get better. You're going to make progress and then you're going to make mistakes. So it's just one of those things where it's like a, it's a practice for a reason, but I went to a meditation retreat and I was meditating on it's funny because I have this like desire to to stretch the boundaries of my brain and be like, what can I do with my mind? And (laughs) I'm not a normal person. So I was reading the book Ecstasy by Julie Holland and it's a book on MDMA. And I was like, Ram Dass wrote in Be Here Now that like his guru took a bunch of acid and felt like it was just like his normal day-to-day existence. So I was like, if meditation can get you to an altered state of consciousness, then maybe I can meditate my way into feeling like I'm on MDMA. And so I was meditating and I was trying to do what's called meta meditation, which is when you use your meditation to specifically speak your way into feeling certain feelings. Typically it's loving kindness, like compassion for all things, peacefulness. But in my case, I just wrote out the spiritual, the emotional, and the physical experiences of MDMA. And I started meditating on those adjectives. I I memorized them and I started going through them in my meditation. And I was like, I feel sensual and I feel connected and I feel aroused and I feel tingly and warm and loving and just happy and joyful and euphoric and unity. And I just kept on going through all these adjectives. And by the end of the meditation, I had found myself 
hit this massive moment of complete ego death, total unity consciousness, where I felt absolute connection to God and source. Like all, like there was no more me or everyone around me. It was just, it was just complete oneness. And it was like a full body orgasm. It was really quite insane. And so I, the meditation was over. I left the meditation hut, go to the bathroom, look in the mirror. And I'm like, did that just happen to you? What was that? And then I find out later, because I mean, I my spiritual path has definitely been sometimes unintentional. And, and so I was reading about these things called jhanas, which is like paths of Buddhist. It's like steps of Buddhist awakening. And like the first level is like feeling like really pleasurable sensations during meditation. And like the second one is like pure joy and bliss. And it's definitely don't get to these states every time I meditate, but when you're meditating for days straight, it's a lot easier to reach these higher states of consciousness. And so I definitely feel like if people are curious and you are practiced, then finding a really good meditation retreat center. I know there's a good one in France and in Oaxaca called, it's a, it's a whole meditation center. I'm actually planning on going sometime in the next year, but yeah, I'm a really, I just really believe in the power of meditating to, to transform consciousness. Yes, 100%. And I love to know that we talked about, of course, in a sense, a love potion, like what you are working on and with your company, Adamo, so that this there are individuals such as yourself, there's a lot of movement, a lot of things happening to bring this experience of love and bliss and connection back to us. It's something that's our birthright. So this mythical love potion, not only are there things happening in the material world, but we actually have this mythical love potion, if you want to call it that, within us. We are it. And so be to be able to reconnect to it, what yeah. the mechanisms, modalities are. It's a beautiful thing and it's a beautiful time we're living in. I'm mm -hmm. actually designing breathwork sessions for the company Othership, which is an app that's all about breathwork. And like I'm designing an MDMA breathwork meditation to see if we can get people to feeling MDMA without taking MDMA. And then I'm also designing some breathwork around like cultivating sexual energy. So things that you could take, you could do with your partner before you engage in sexual activity. Stay tuned for those because I'm really stoked. I'm flying to Toronto in December to record them. And I love this app and I'm so excited to be able to bring these tools. Beautiful. Dr. Molly, thank you so much for all these things that you're doing, breaking down barriers and taking us deeper to what ultimately is our true selves, taking us yeah. back there. And thank you for making time today for Gateway Sessions. It was such a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you so much. This has just been amazing. I've had a great time. Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space.